We turn in Scripture to Revelation chapter 5, and we're going to begin reading at verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the the tribe of Judah, the roots of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that's in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So we come to the end of our journey along Route 66. We've reached our destination. It's been a bit of a whirlwind tour through the Bible, but now we come to to Revelation at the very end. Now, as I'm sure you know, Revelation is not a book often preached on, which makes me suspicious. Why Jeff did not say, come and preach on the Gospels, or come and preach on Paul's letters, but come and preach to us on the book that no one wants to preach on. 
But it's still lovely to be here. And I, I bring all the love and greetings of Cornerstone to you this morning. Now, I want, you to, I want to show you three pictures this morning that will help us, I hope, to think about the book of Revelation. Here's the first one. Do you recognize that? Uh, the Mona Lisa by Leonardo da Vinci painted around 1503-1504. At a time when, if you painted portraits of people, then you wanted to be as accurate as possible. Now, all portrait painters would have been, you know, would have done things to flatter their subjects a bit, you know, make you a little bit thinner, you know, a bit more hair on top and those kind of things. But the idea was to be as accurate as possible. There were no, there were no photos. This was to be the person captured in a picture. Let me show you a second picture. Entitled Woman with a Parasol by Claude Monet. Painted around 1875. Monet was known as one of the founders of the Impressionist movement. He was trying to paint pictures in a different kind of way. Less concerned with the exact details and trying to make it an exact likeness. The painting's a little bit more fuzzy around the edges. But it gives you, with the shape and the colour, the impression of it. Let me show you one more picture. This is from about 1915. It's not a painting by Picasso, but it's a painting of Picasso by one of, uh, I guess, his followers, Jean Gris. A time when, and a part of painting that was known as the Cubist movement, when everything was in straight lines. So clearly what's happened is Gris has taken... Picasso sitting in front of him and painting it in a very different kind of way. You wouldn't look at this picture and think, didn't Picasso have a funny face? You'll say, what's the painter done and what's the painter trying to say through painting in this particular kind of way? You get the the difference between the three pictures. Does that make sense? Now, suppose, I know there are some budding uh, and good artists in the church. Uh, Benjamin came, uh, my son came to, uh, uh, came to Duco's one evening and came back with a really nice watercolour that had been taught to do. So suppose a group of you were going to paint and Jeff was your subject. Now, you could decide what, what sort of style of painting are you going to use. Are you going to paint in a very sort of literal way, trying to get exactly right. Are you going to paint in a different kind of style? The reality is the same. But how you represent the reality may be different if you use a different way of painting. Now, the same, of course, is true with words. We may take a reality and describe it in words but use words in different kinds of ways. We may describe Jeff in terms of his height and his weight and his shiny black shoes and his grey jacket. Or you might say that Jeff is a shepherd of God's people. Now, Jeff doesn't literally have a flock of sheep, to my knowledge, in his back garden, to keep the grass down. We're using language in a different kind of way. 
If you said Jeff's a star, you don't mean Jeff is a ball of gas floating somewhere in the sky. We're using language in a different kind of way. The reality is the same, whether we describe Jeff in terms of his height and his weight and his clothes, or we use language like shepherd, but we've described it using different kinds of language. And that's a very long introduction to the book of Revelation. Because the fundamental question, or the two fundamental questions are, what kind of language is it using, and what reality is it trying to talk about? So let me put this up on a, on a, on a slide for you, see if that might help. So you can see it here, okay? I hope you can see that. Along, along going upwards, you've got the literal to the symbolic. This is the kind of thing, if you want to think pictures, uh, the Mona Lisa starts at the bottom, the Monet is halfway up, and the painting of Picasso is at the top. How is it trying to use words to describe the reality? Is it trying to use the words to describe it literally, or is it using words in a more symbolic kind of way? Along the bottom, you've got the question of what reality is it talking about? Is it talking about the reality that was very much at the time of the writer and very soon afterwards? Or is it talking about reality that would be a long term in the future, when the world finishes? Now, you could say, well, of course, Revelation talks about all these things in all those ways. And to some degree, you might be right. You might read a passage and say, what kind of language is being used here? But you also need to recognise, and this is one of the problems of the book of Revelation, why it's caused so much controversy, is that often people have a particular place on this grid where it's like their default setting. Let me give you one or two examples. Harold Camping. Uh, back in the beginning of the year, uh, said the world was going to end uh, on May in May 2011. As far as we know, it's not. He's changed his mind, and so it's now going to end in October the 21st, 2011. How does Camping come to those kind of views? Well, fundamental is. Because he is, if we have it up, they should be coming up, he's there. That's where he is, sits on the grid. He sees the Bible, particularly Revelation, talking particularly about the long-term future when the world will end in quite a literal way. So he's trying to work out all the dates and the numbers and the thousands it mentions to come to a date. To get to that, you have to think that Revelation is understood in that kind of way. Let me give you a second example. You may have come across the author, the American author called Tim LaHaye, who's written a whole series of novels, uh, often called the Left Behind series of novels. They're set at some point in the future when the Christians have been raptured up to heaven and there's terrible things happening on earth for everybody else. Now, that kind of understanding comes from a particular reading of the book of Revelation. And Tim LaHaye would also be in that bottom right-hand corner. He approaches Revelation thinking that it's talking mainly about the long-term future at the end of the world and to see it in much more literal 
ways. There would have been people who would have uh, been in that bottom left-hand corner uh, in the first hundred years after the book was written. But of course, as time goes on, if you want to take it more literally in that kind of way, people tend to push over to this bottom right-hand corner. I would put myself, as we come up on the screen, somewhere at the top there. Almost the opposite. This seems to me, as I read it, where, where I'm going to approach the book of Revelation from. It seems to me that the language in it is much more symbolic than literal. And it seems to me that, that what John is wanting to talk about is much more what's going on in his day than looking forward to thousands of years' time. Now, there are future parts of Revelation. But for me, that's where I would want to put the emphasis. And that shapes the way I read the book of Revelation. One of the questions we want to ask, of course, is, well, how do we decide? That might be partly we decide because that's the way we've grown up and that's what was taught in the churches that we've been part of. For me, I want to put it there because as you look around and see other types of books written a bit like Revelation, it seems to me they're wanting to talk much more about the kind of time they're in and how they understand what's happening to them at that moment. And they're using often a shared symbolic language that those people could understand. We think that the the context of Revelation, when John wrote it, was a time of, of significant persecution for the church. And one of the things that books like Revelation do is enable you to talk about events that are happening using language that's a little bit more subtle and veiled than saying it quite literally. Because when you're being persecuted, you need to do that. You find ways of talking about things that other people who aren't part of your group won't quite understand. And that often happens when people are persecuted. They want to find ways of communicating that particularly those in authority would not understand. So, that's uh, our beloved introduction. Let's move to the text. Revelation chapter 1 begins with John having a vision of Jesus, the Son of Man. And then in chapters 2 and 3, we have the letters written to the seven churches. Now, these are the bits people normally preach from Revelation, because they're the easiest. And then in chapters 4 and 5, we move to this vision of heaven. In many ways, I think these two chapters are at the heart of the book of Revelation. And in it, John isn't seeing the future compared to the present. In these two chapters, John is looking at two realities. The earthly reality of what's going on around them. And for the church at the time, that was not an enjoyable experience. Contrasted with the heavenly reality. A reality that already exists in a different sphere 
in a different way. So, John is saying to his church, this, in our reality, in what's going on, we can open the door and glimpse something of what is happening at the moment, now, in heaven. And in the heart of chapters 4 and 5 are two particular images. The throne and the Lamb. So in chapter 4, it begins in verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, and there in heaven stood a throne, with one seated on the throne. Now thrones are about rulers and authority and control. So we know that chapters 4 and 5 are going to be about control and authority and ruling. And of course, this is using, I think, symbolic language. The one on the throne is God. But, but God can't sit on the throne because that would make God to be like a human being. God is much bigger than sitting on a literal throne. But that's the language it uses because it's going to talk about ruling and control. And in chapter 5, verse 6, we read, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb is clearly an image and picture of Jesus. So the second thing we know that these chapters will be about will be about Jesus. In some way, they're going to be about Jesus our destination. Let me show you one more picture. If you can see that, it's not very clear up there. It's a picture, it's a very modern picture by someone called Jessica Rannikin, who has tried to paint a picture based on every book of Revelation, to try and put into pictures what the words are trying to say. And again, it shows a picture of a lamb. But that, of course, is a symbol. Jesus isn't literally a lamb with horns. But that's the image it's using. And I think Revelation chapters 4 and 5 are essentially answering two questions. Who is in control and how did they come to rule? Are the two questions that were being asked and offered an answer to? Who is ruling? Who is in control? The answer Revelation gives is very simple. God, in chapter 4, is on the throne, and the Lamb, in chapter 5, is with God. But to get the point, we need to realise what Revelation is saying about who is not in control. And that's the Roman Emperor. Chapters 4 and 5 use lots of symbols. It talks about uh, the jewels in the throne, the 24 elders, the four living creatures, casting of golden crowns. And some of this language is drawn from the Old Testament. We might read uh, Ezekiel chapter 1, or Isaiah chapter 6, or Daniel chapter 7. And John is clearly wanting to be part of this tradition, using that kind of language. 
but part of our anger which is also taken from what happened in the court of the emperor. The Roman emperor was often depicted holding a letter or a scroll that was sealed. When foreign kings were defeated, they would come before the emperor and bow down and give their crowns to him. The emperor was attended by 24 people called lictors, who not only acted as a bodyguard, but would have been people to ensure that the emperor received the adulation that he was due. When they gathered, they would have sung hymns in praise of the emperor. You see the connections. And the connections are deliberate. John sees a vision of heaven painted a bit like the imperial court. And John is saying to his church, while the Roman emperor thinks he is in control, and the Roman emperor was probably at the time Domitian, with all this pomp and all this power, there is another reality, a different reality, in which God is in control. And this is both comforting and subversive. It's deeply subversive because John sees an image of the Lamb on the throne. The Lamb that the Romans killed. So John is saying, in this reality, it looks like the Romans are in charge and in control, but there is a different reality in which God is in control. And God is ruling. As I said, it seems certain that part of the background is a time of persecution. Revelation talks a number of times about being martyred for your faith. John gives the church a chance to look up, to focus their eyes on heaven and see a different reality. God is in control. This does not mean the persecution will stop. It doesn't mean that in this reality everything will be sorted out. But it does mean there is a different reality. And in that eternal one, God is in control. Now that's comforting, isn't it? At times of persecution, to know that actually, ultimately, God is in control. And there is a different eternal reality. But it's also deeply subversive, because if you're saying God's in control, you're saying the Roman emperor is not in control. And you say that too loudly, and you'll be persecuted even more. Which is, of course, why they do it in a slightly different kind of way. God is in control. You are not. Now, for some Christians around the world today, that is their experience of life. They can read Revelation and know exactly what's happening because their experiences of those who are being persecuted for their faith. 
we are not in that place. Sometimes you read and people suggest that we are experiencing persecution because people can't wear their crosses to work and things like that. We need to get a reality check. You know, this is persecution when people are being killed for their faith. But it does say, I think, still a lot to us about life today. If God is in control, if God is at the centre, and Revelation uses that phrase several times, in the middle, in the centre, was God on his throne, it means that other things are not. If God is in the centre, other things are not. Maybe in our society, in which money, possessions, a market capitalist system that suggests an ever-increasing wealth for states and individuals, when that becomes the centre of life and the centre of thinking, it pushes God out into the margins of life. Well, maybe a particular person or a particular relationship becomes so important to us that God is pushed out of the centre. God becomes on the margins of life. And Revelation 5 is about saying that if God is at the centre, other things cannot be. It may be different things for different of us today. It's a challenge that says if God is at the centre, other things cannot be there and must be displaced. Now, in many ways, it seems to me we quite like God to be at the margins of life, on the boundaries, because that's a safe and comfortable place for God to be. God is there when we need him. God is there to call upon when life is hard and we need some help. But it's quite safe and not too much is challenged. When God is at the centre, we will be challenged and we will be confronted and we will be forced to change. And that can be a hard and uncomfortable place to be. God at the centre. That's deeply subversive, even in our culture today. That if we lived with God at the centre and other things on the margins. Let me briefly look at that second question. How did they come to rule? The answer for John is equally subversive. They sing in verse 9, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You are worthy because they sing. The Roman Empire had grown and grown, and was intent on growing bigger. And essentially, there was one method of expansion. You, you fight another nation, you defeat them, 
you subjugate them and you beat them as hard as you possibly can. And then you're in control. The Romans called this the Roman peace. A touch of irony there, perhaps. But the method was simple force and domination. John sees an alternative and says, you are worthy to open the seals because you were the one who was slain. That you gave yourself away in love and sacrifice. This is not, John says, the way the world works. This is not the reality we see around us. But this is, he says, the reality of heaven in which the Lamb is on the throne who gave himself away for the sake of others. We hear here the echoes of Jesus' deeply subversive teachings. That if you want to live, well, you've got to die. If you want abundant life, you take up your cross. The challenge is clear, I think, for us as a church. Which of these realities will shape our life together as a church? The reality that forces things to happen so that we get our way or the reality in which we give ourselves in love and sacrifice. Not counting the cost, but being willing to give and give and give again. Now, of course, we'll say to ourselves, the second one is how we run our church. And then we'll stop and think and say to ourselves, maybe not always. You are worthy, they sing, because you were slain. We come to the end of our journey on Route 66. Our destination is Jesus, the Lamb on the throne who is in control, worthy because he gave himself away in love and sacrifice. And John offers for us this picture of the worship of heaven and invites us to share in it, to share in these songs of praise to God. In a moment we're going to do that. We're going to sing a great hymn of praise. And as we do, we're going to echo and be caught up in the worship of heaven. Because as John points out, this isn't a future thing. The worship of heaven happens here and now, at this time. And it's a privilege and an honour and a gift to be caught up in that worship of heaven. But let's remember too, to worship God 
is deeply subversive. Because if we're caught up in the worship of heaven, we will be changed by that. We cannot truly worship God and not be changed by being in his presence.